Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. What does the Constitution mean? What do the words of that document mean for a particular case that comes before the Supreme Court? And how does the court approach that task of constitutional interpretation? Before tackling that question, I want to tell you a story about a homeowners association covenant and a dispute that arose over how to interpret the words of that covenant in a neighborhood that I used to live in. In that neighborhood, property owners couldn't have fences, except there was one fence, and it was put behind the properties that backed up to a busy road. And the idea was that it would maintain aesthetic standards for the neighborhood, it would reduce noise pollution, it would look nice, it would raise property values. And about 10 years into the HOA's existence, it was time to power wash that fence. And so the HOA goes to each one of the property owners, asks them to pay for their portion of the cost to power wash the fence. Of course, you can't get 100% of the people to agree to pay for that portion, and so they go to the HOA as a whole, and they ask whether or not the HOA will pay to power wash this fence. And as you can imagine, it becomes controversial. Some of the people in the HOA don't want to pay in order to power wash a fence that's the private property of some other homeowner. And so then a question arose at the HOA meeting. Can the HOA, consistent with the covenants, pay to wash the exterior of the fence? And then somebody takes out the HOA covenants and reads this portion. It says, The Homes Association has been formed both to protect architectural, aesthetic, and development standards and to create a structure for the execution of maintenance tasks normally associated with the care of the development's common areas and or elements. Such duties as lawn care, landscaping, and other normal maintenance of any grounds or structures held in common by homeowners are funded with annual homeowners association fees, which may be adjusted in accordance with the budget projected for annual maintenance or improvements. So does this fence constitute some common area or common element? And is power washing the fence part of the normal maintenance for which homeowners association fees could be used? The debate then broke out in this HOA meeting. What is a common area exactly? What's the difference between a common area and a common element? Are they the same thing? Are they different? When the HOA covenants were being written, how did the people who wrote the covenants understand the idea of a common area or element? And should we be bound by their understanding? Could we not determine for ourselves 10 years later after the development of the neighborhood and the growth in population and the increase of traffic on that street, whether or not they now constitute something that we consider to be held in common? And in what sense are they held in common? Is the fact that it impacts the home values for the rest of the neighborhood? And what kind of evidence could we bring to bear on that question? What kinds of things would tell us the answer to that? And it turns out that really it was just one person who wrote the covenants. It was the developer of the neighborhood, and he lived just down the street. And so somebody says, well, let's ask Alan what he meant when he wrote the covenants. And then somebody else chimes in, well, it doesn't matter what Alan says today. It matters what he did 10 years ago. And so somebody else says, well, I think I have an email record where we had an email chain talking about this. I could go back and find it, and we could see what he said about it 10 years ago. And somebody else chimes in and says, look, it doesn't matter what kind of private email record you might have. It matters what's publicly recorded in the document itself. We have to go to the words of the text as people would have understood those words when it was being written. 
We can't focus on some private email correspondence as though the private intentions would govern the public meaning of that document. And then somebody else says, look, we shouldn't be so hung up on the text itself or the words. We should be thinking about the purpose. What's the point of the HOA in the first place? Why does it exist? And if it exists to protect the aesthetic development standards of the neighborhood, then we should focus on that and ask whether or not this kind of policy, appropriating money for the power washing of the fence, would help us accomplish those objectives. And as I was sitting here listening to this, I just laughed about how the different people in this HOA meeting broke out immediately and almost spontaneously into these different positions that we normally associate with constitutional interpretation. And it dawned on me that if the stakes were higher in homeowners association covenants, then we would have some pretty sophisticated theories about how we should interpret and approach those documents. The stakes are high in constitutional interpretation, and we do have some pretty sophisticated theories about how we should go about interpreting the Constitution. We're not going to be able to sort that all out today, but I do want to talk a bit about the different approaches to constitutional interpretation. And they begin with some of the questions we've already asked. What is the Constitution? What kind of document is it? And what method of interpretation is appropriate for that kind of document? And then, of course, always with us in this conversation is a question about who gets to interpret, who can authoritatively tell us what the Constitution means. And is there any final or authoritative, ultimate interpreter of the Constitution? Sandy Levinson, who's a professor at the University of Texas School of Law and who back in the day was on my dissertation committee, has a little book called Constitutional Faith. And in that book, he has a section where he talks about Catholic and Protestant approaches to constitutional interpretation. What he had in mind is the idea that you find within Catholicism that there is an authoritative magisterium that interprets and pronounces definitively the doctrines of the church. And he contrasts that with what he calls the Protestant approach of private individual interpretation, where the individual person or perhaps different communities of people read the text and interpret it for themselves. Levinson then relates this to a line in Federalist number 37 that really is astounding when you stop and think about it. This essay was written by James Madison, and Madison says this, When the Almighty himself condescends to address mankind in their own language, his meaning, luminous as it must be, is rendered dim and doubtful by the cloudy medium through which it is communicated. And he seems to be pointing us to these kinds of debates about how to interpret scripture or authoritative religious texts. And he says, even if we agreed that the text is authoritative, that it came from God himself, still we're going to disagree about what it means because it has to be communicated in our own language. And the medium through which it's communicated makes it doubtful and dim. And partly what Madison's getting at here is the problem of ambiguity. And if we think about that in terms of the Constitution, we have the question about how do we resolve that ambiguity and whether there is an authority, the Supreme Court in this instance, that would be akin to a magisterium authoritatively pronouncing the meaning of the Constitution, or whether it's messier than that, and whether it's worked out in dialogue with individuals and communities, but never authoritatively settled. Some provisions in the Constitution seem pretty clear when you're reading them. We know what the qualifications are to run for office. We have a very specific presidential oath. We know there'll be equal representation of states in the Senate. We know how to amend the Constitution, at least formally. But others are not so obvious. What does it mean to have reasonable searches and seizures? What constitutes cruel and unusual punishment? What's the due process of law? What does equal protection entail? What does it mean to regulate commerce? What is commerce? What is the general welfare? What is necessary and proper? 
all of these provisions in the Constitution admit of some ambiguity. And there's a specific challenge related to this that some scholars have leveled at the Constitution and has had a profound impact on legal academia. And it's the argument that the text is indeterminate, that it actually has no meaning until we give meaning to it. There can be no act of interpretation under this theory because we're not actually interpreting the Constitution. We're constructing reality as we go. If that's the case, then a text that means nothing can mean anything, and that's the challenge that is leveled. But if we set that aside and say no, words mean something, it might be underdetermined in some contexts or overdetermined in others, but it's not indeterminate. It's not a blank slate that we can write anything on. We have to actually derive meaning from the text and not simply impose meaning on it. And if we admit that the text means something, what does it mean? And how do we find out? The first and most obvious place to start would be with the text itself. In Joseph Story's 1833 commentaries on the U.S. Constitution, he wrote that it's obvious that there can be no security to the people in any constitution of government if they are not to judge of it by the fair meaning of the words of the text. But of course, that doesn't settle controversy for us. We have to ask how we discern the fair meaning of the words of the text. How do we go about that task? One possible approach is originalism, that we have to ask what the original meaning of the text was when it was written. There are different ways to go about this, and the theory of originalism has gone through various iterations over time. We might ask what the framers intended when they wrote that document, but we have the difficulty of deciding who counts as a framer, and how do we know what they intended, and what counts as evidence of that intent. And so we might transfer the question to the original public meaning. What would a reasonable person at the time understand those words to mean, whatever the private intentions of the framers might have happened to be. But this turns law into an exercise in history, and history is contested. As a case in point, consider Washington, D.C. versus Heller in 2008, when the Supreme Court asked whether the Second Amendment protected an individual right to keep and bear arms, or whether the right was actually to be understood in connection with service in a state militia. The Supreme Court divided into competing camps, largely on originalist grounds, and they offered dueling histories. And even in that case, there was a challenge that was brought up by extension. Even though Washington, D.C. is technically part of the federal government, very soon after that case of D.C. versus Heller, you had a question of whether the holding in that case would apply to states. And whether the holding applied to states depended on how we understood the doctrine of incorporation or this idea that the Bill of Rights are incorporated into the 14th Amendment's due process clause and applied to the states. It's not obvious from the text of the Constitution that the 14th Amendment does incorporate the first eight amendments and applies them against the states. But the Supreme Court has developed this doctrine of incorporation over time. And so much of constitutional law, even for those who are concerned with the text and the history and the original understanding, is also driven by constitutional doctrines. And doctrines are judicial creations. And so the court, when going about interpreting and applying doctrines, often relies on precedents. They look to previous cases. How have we addressed this question before? And this reliance on precedent is itself a kind of doctrine, the doctrine of stare decisis, the idea that we should decide the case as it's been decided before. But like the text itself, like legal doctrines that have been developed by the Supreme Court, Precedents also demand interpretation and application. And we also have to ask why we should rely on precedent in the first place and what authority precedent has. Article 3 of the Constitution never mentions stare decisis, never mentions precedent, it never mentions doctrine. In fact, it never mentions constitutional interpretation. The challenges here have led some to say that judges should act with prudence. 
They should be aware of the interpretive choices that they have to make in specific cases, and they should act minimally to make small changes, incremental changes in law. And it's related to the idea of the consequences of legal decisions, that you want stability in the law, stability in the expectations that people have about how the law will be applied in specific cases. And because of that, judges should prudentially defer to past decisions and make incremental changes in the law through their interpretations. But sometimes when cases come to the Supreme Court, the decisions don't rely solely on the text or doctrines or precedents, but they rely on reasoning from the structure of the Constitution itself. This arguably is what Publius often does in the Federalist Papers. When we talk about ambition checking ambition, or we talk about the design of our political institutions, we're often not talking about specific or concrete clauses in the Constitution. We're talking about constitutional structure as a whole. Things like the separation of powers, federalism, government by consent, a mix of state representation and popular representation. These are features of the constitutional structure that play a role in constitutional interpretation. In fact, the very argument for the constitutionality of judicial review, the idea that the Supreme Court would be reviewing laws and determining whether or not they were constitutional, is itself an inference from constitutional structure and from the separation of powers. And although this is not even close to an exhaustive list of all the different ways we could approach constitutional interpretation, there is one more approach that deserves mention. That is the aspirational approach to constitutional interpretation or the inference of certain purposes or aspirations in the constitutional text itself. In a famous fragment written about the Constitution in 1861, really just as a private personal reflection, Abraham Lincoln wrote this, All of this is not the result of accident talking about the growth and success of the United States in the 19th century. It had a philosophical cause. Without the Constitution and the Union, we could not have attained the result. But even these are not the primary cause of our great prosperity. There is something back of these, entwining itself more closely about the human heart. That something is the principle of liberty to all, the principle that clears the path for all, gives hope to all, and by consequence, enterprise and industry to all. The expression of that principle in our Declaration of Independence was most happy and fortunate. Without this, as well as with it, we could have declared our independence of Great Britain, but without it we could not, I think, have secured our free government and consequent prosperity. The assertion of that principle at that time was the word fitly spoken, which has proved an apple of gold to us. The Union and the Constitution are the picture of silver subsequently framed around it. The picture was made not to conceal or destroy the apple, but to adorn and preserve it. The picture was made for the apple, not the apple for the picture. Notice the metaphor that Lincoln uses here to describe the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. He says that the principles in the Declaration of Independence, and particularly the principle of natural human equality and liberty to all, is the cause of our great prosperity. And the frame around the apple is the Constitution. The frame is made for the picture, not the picture for the frame. The Constitution serves a purpose. It's designed and it's intended to carry out the ideals of the Declaration of Independence. And for Lincoln, this influenced the way that he approached constitutional interpretation and the way that he approached constitutional statesmanship, his role as president in protecting and defending the Constitution of the United States. With these approaches in the background, think of how you would answer this question. Can there ever be an unconstitutional constitutional amendment? The basic question is whether there are certain changes to the Constitution that would make it into something else. 
It's a tricky philosophical problem. Think of a house or a car. If you have a car and you replace over time all of the different parts in the car, is it still the same car? If you have a house and you replace everything about the house, at some point does it become a different house? And the answer might be, well, it depends on if it retains the same form, the same structure, even though the parts are different. Something like that could be applied to the Constitution. If you change some of the words or some of the structures, does it retain its identity as the thing that it is? But at some point, if you changed every word in the text or completely altered its structure, would it become a new kind of constitution? Are there limits to how you can amend it? Are there certain things that are hardwired into it? Now, all that's unrelated to the question of whether the Supreme Court should refuse to allow an amendment to go into effect or whether the Supreme Court would have the authority to say whether there's an unconstitutional constitutional amendment. But the exercise forces you to think about what the Constitution is, what constitutes its identity, what makes it the thing that it is, and that helps us think about how we would go about interpreting its provisions. The Constitution itself doesn't tell us how to go about that task. Article 3 doesn't mention constitutional interpretation. The writers of the Constitution disagreed with each other very early on in the Constitution's history about what it means and how it should be applied and what method we should use to interpret it. And significantly, Article 3 of the Constitution doesn't say anything about the power of the Supreme Court to say what the Constitution means or to refuse to give effect to a law passed by the legislature because the court thinks it's unconstitutional. That power would develop over time, and so we'll turn in our next discussion to the important case of Marbury versus Madison in 1803 and the development of the doctrine of judicial review.